From The Conversation, this is Politics with Michelle Grattan, a podcast where we hear from politicians and experts on the issues of the day. The federal government has released the massive Royal Commission into violence, abuse, neglect and exploitation of people with disability. The Commission has made more than 220 recommendations and cost the taxpayer $600 million. It will take the government months to respond. But that response has made them more difficult because the Commissioners split on certain key issues. Today we talk with Green Senator Jordan Steele-John, who is the party's spokesperson on disability and has a disability himself. Jordan Steele-John, what are your overall thoughts about this report? Well, my first thought is immense pride in the Australian disability community for our contribution to this report. This is the work of so many people who have themselves experienced violence, abuse, exploitation and neglect who campaigned for decades um, to see this investigation be undertaken. Um, And it's a milestone for the Australian disability community um, who have come together in the aftermath of this report to say now is the time to end segregation and to end ableism in Australian government policymaking. It's got a huge number of recommendations, but what are some of the recommendations you agree with or don't agree with? Well, I think that some of the recommendations that have been around, that have been made around the ending of segregation in work, in education and in housing is really important that those observations and those points have been made because we do know very clearly, and and these are recommendations that have been made by the disabled commissioners themselves, we know that there is a cycle of segregation in Australia where disabled people are forced to enter into a segregated education system, separated from their peers. They then go through into segregated work uh, where they are paid sometimes two or three dollars an hour Um, and then they go through into uh, segregated housing either because uh, the rents are too high in mainstream accommodation or uh, there isn't the the logistical access to those um, mainstream forms of housing they're not physically accessible Um, or indeed they are encouraged or in some cases coerced to enter into these Um, institutionalised environments. And those three elements together um, cause violence, abuse, neglect. They are exploitative. Ultimately, they lead to early death. And I think that is a really important point we need to focus on here. Segregation leads to abuse and the early death of disabled people. And that's why it is so important that the government now act to end those settings Um, and to uh, prevent itself from further supporting those policies. These questions of separate schools and separate housing have really formed the, the sharp end of the debate about this report in these first days. The commissioners split on these issues, with some saying that special schools and group housing should be phased out over a long period and others seeing a place for them. You think that they should be phased out, but isn't there a need for some 
people with disability to have special conditions. Is this a practical proposal, this phase-out proposal? Well, I think it's really important to recognise the reality that these the recommendations for the ending of segregation in schooling, in work and in housing comes from the disabled members of the Commission. And I put uh, a lot of weight in that recommendation and, and those perspectives because their views most closely align with the experiences of disabled people and the expectations of the disability community. I believe some of the timelines they've outlined are uh, wildly inadequate in terms of the amount of time that they've um, suggested that we take to reach the destination of desegregation. But there's... Too long, you mean? Too long. Too long, far too long. They've suggested that we wait until 2050 to end segregated education, for instance. That would mean that a disabled child born today would be likely to see their child educated in a segregated setting. That's not acceptable. Um, They've also recommended that we take a decade to reach the point at which a disabled person is paid the same as a non-disabled person in the workplace. That's unacceptable. But I think it is really important that we really grapple with and acknowledge the reality of the damage that segregation does to people. It leads to loneliness and isolation and it exposes them to the violence, abuse and neglect that the uh, recommendations in the report found. To this question of how do we get there? The Greens believe, and I'm a strong proponent of this policy position, that we need a transition to inclusive education that is completed Uh, by 2030. Now, we as the Greens put that forward uh, within a certain context. We want to see a greater increase in Commonwealth funding for public education in Australia. We really recognise that we have an education system at the moment in which the Commonwealth overfund private schools while underfunding public schools. And this is at a time when 83% of public school teachers for instance, report having to dip in to their own personal savings to buy extras and also basics for their classroom activities. So we really do have a broken system. We want to see about $49 billion invested in the public school system over the decade um, in addition to an increase in infrastructure spending and a reallocation of the spending which is already taken at the moment in the segregated education space. Now, with those measures taken together with additional support tools for teachers to be able to teach the entirety of the class, implemented within a national strategy for inclusive education that is co-designed with disabled students, with parents, with unions and with uh, educational academics, we believe that it is perfectly possible to to achieve that inclusive system by 2030. Can I just put a contrary argument that uh, some people involved in the sector, people with uh, children with a disability have put, and that is that the disabled community is not really one community, one uniform community, that uh, there's a spectrum here that more integration of people with some disability 
might be highly desirable, but for those with a profound disability, special schools are just more appropriate to their needs and also they require really, really specialised people in charge of them, teachers. Mm, Well, I think it's really important to begin this conversation with a commitment to the right of every disabled child to mainstream inclusive education. That is the right of the child as articulated under the United Nations Framework Convention that we have signed up to, um, and also the United Nations uh, Convention on the Rights of the Child. So we know that every Australian child begins with the right to be educated alongside their peers in a supported way, in a well-funded environment that meets their needs. And it's really important that we don't drop that commitment just because the child is disabled. What we've seen from other education systems around the world is that this absolutely can be done. There's some great work being done right now in Portugal and in New Brunswick in Canada that are modelling the really the best ways to achieve these transitions and the great outcomes that you get from kids as part of that process. What I hear a lot from parents and that one of the Royal Commissioners involved in the investigation has made this point last week, um, is that often parents feel that they have no other choice than to send their child to a special school because the mainstream uh, system rejects their child um, and uh, coerces them or, quite frankly, refuses uh, to enrol their child in a public school. And that's not acceptable, that phenomenon of gatekeeping. So what we need to do is identify what are the supports um, that students need in classrooms, what are the supports that teachers need to teach to their class, and how do we achieve the reality where a child can be educated uh, fully alongside their peers in that inclusive way, because the alternative of maintaining this segregated system is a reality where children are continued to be exposed to abuse, neglect and exploitation and ultimately set up for a life within a segregated system that leads to their early death. Um, And that is not an acceptable outcome. Now, there's another report that's uh, in the works, a much shorter inquiry into the NDIS. It's said to come to us at the end of this month. What are your expectations out of that report? Well, I think the disabled community have a desire to see that report recommend the changes that we have been articulating to the government for a very long time now. There, There is a hope that it will recommend various different changes to make it easier to access the NDIS because people often experience far too many barriers and requirements to um, jump through a lot of hoops, for want of a better word, to get the access to the basic supports that they need. Um, I think there's a real hope that it will address the structural discrimination within the scheme when it comes to people over the age of 65 being kind of locked out. Um, of the NDIS. And I think there are emerging communities that have said very clearly through the course of this report, and the ADHD community is one of them, that it needs to be a lot easier to get uh, particularly those um, supports under the scheme. 
What I am concerned about, Michelle, though, is that we actually seem to see a government rhetoric um, and some comments from the uh, chairs of the investigation themselves um, that, that are cause for concern, that do seem to suggest that instead of taking those steps to make the, the NDIS easier to access um, and to expand those to which it can provide support, instead what we're going to see is a recommendation, a series of policy changes which will restrict access, um, which will kick people off the scheme, um, all in the, in the kind of name of um, a, a still quite a confected set um, of financial, so-called financial concerns. So I hear a very um, significantly increasing number of, of people that are actually quite concerned about what the report will mean for them, uh, particularly people with psychosocial disabilities um, and those who are neurodivergent as well. Now, the government wants to uh, limit the cost increases of the scheme to some 8% increase a year from 2026. It's currently about 14% annually. Surely that's not a, an unreasonable position for the government to take. Well, I think it is an unreasonable position for the government to take primarily because they haven't articulated to the community what that will practically mean. The financial sustainability framework, which is the mechanism by which they have said they will achieve that goal, is a document which they have uh, multiple times now refused to release to the public um, and indeed disclose to the Australian Senate. So uh, there is no ability for the Australian community more broadly to understand the assumptions upon which that 8% target is based. All we know is that it is the largest single uh, saving measure that was announced in uh, the budget that was brought down by the Treasurer. But I do think it is really important to, to ask ourselves a question, uh, why it is that programs like the NDIS, social service programs, uh, that people rely on every day to do things like have a shower, meet their friends, go to work, why they are subject to such stringent conversations around their financial cost. Whereas a program like AUKUS, um, which proposes the expenditure of $368 billion on eight nuclear submarines that won't be delivered until the time I'm 60, or stage three tax cuts, which the latest costings say will, will cost us about $313 billion to give tax cuts to some of the wealthiest people in our society. Why is it that, that these uh, things are treated so differently? And why is it that if there is a need for additional funding um, for something like the NDIS, that our government simply doesn't reevaluate those policies or programs before uh, restricting the numbers of showers that a disabled person can take every day? The minister responsible for the scheme, Bill Shorten, hasn't waited for this report. He's already initiated some uh, reforms and changes in the scheme to stop it being exploited, especially by unscrupulous providers. Do you think he's improved the scheme or are you critical of those changes? Uh, I think so far I, my primary marker for has the has the scheme in, improved is the kind of constituent work cases that we have come to us 
um, seeking help and, and support. Um, and since the coalition government was kicked out, um, there has been a slight reduction in the tempo of people coming to us for, for support. But really, um, there continues to be a lot of people who are um, coming to us for support around the amount, the value of their plans being unjustifiably reduced, certain supports and services removed from their plans. But that is still happening to people every day. And my, uh, my quite critical observation of the government um, is that they have, I think, failed to push back on and have in many ways bought into a conversation about the NDIS, which um, is very one-sided, focusing um, on its financial implications on the overall federal budget um, and minimising the good that it does in people's lives, while point-blank refusing to commission new research or investigations into the positive economic impact of a scheme who, the last time anybody checked, actually returned $2.25 for every dollar that was invested in it. So if you combine that with the fact that the minister has made a number of comments and their colleagues have made a number of comments about people with psychosocial disabilities and other disabilities, um, and there being too many of them um, on the scheme, I think that's really concerning to me and really concerning to the disability community more broadly. You've advocated for a a special minister for disability. Are you uh, getting any good feedback on this and why is this necessary? Well, it's very good to be able to say that in Australia we have a minister for women who is a woman. We have a minister for First Nations issues who is a First Nations person. We need to see the establishment of a disability minister in Australia, ideally somebody who was disabled themselves, and that is really clearly needed now more than ever because of the amount of work that is needed at the federal level to implement the recommendations of the Royal Commission. We have 220 recommendations that span so many areas of government focus. There needs to be one person uh, who is in charge of coordinating the government's response um, and who can be held accountable by the disability community at the ballot box. The Greens have been calling for this for about 18 months. We're really happy to see that that was one of the key recommendations of the Royal Commission. And that is something that the government can accept and implement right now when Parliament returns. Well, certainly disability policy is going to be a matter of uh, intense debate and centre stage over the next few months. Jordan Steele, John, thank you very much for talking with us today. That's all for this podcast. Thank you to my producer, Mikey Burnett. We'll be back with another interview soon, but goodbye for now. Our theme music is by Lee Rosevere. You can find more podcasts from The Conversation on our website at theconversation.com.